with Mark 10, 46 through 52 as a backdrop. The Reverend S.D. Gardner Cantor reflects in this sermon from October 29, 2006, on the spiritual blindness that accompanies wartime, our contentious relationship as a church with the idea of just war, and the present situation in Iraq. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus, is the last thing that Jesus does before he goes to Jerusalem. It is the last thing he does before the very first Palm Sunday. Now, we've recently heard of the almost unimaginable blindness of James and John. Here they were, surrounded by the oncoming rush of the coming of the kingdom of God, daily in the presence of the Christ. And all they can do is worry about their own little piece of the status, their own little piece of power. But who we hear about today is a blind man who could see. Because even before Jesus healed him, he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. It's the first time in this gospel that that title has been used. The title, son of David, foreshadows the joyous throng that followed and preceded Jesus, that laid down their precious cloaks, laid down the palm branches in front of him, and cried out, Blessed Be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So this blind man knew who Jesus was. Bartimaeus flings off his cloak to go to Jesus. This cloak that may have been his only possession. That was probably the way that he gathered alms. This cloak that may have been his whole living. So in this way, he is contrasted not only with James and John, but with the rich man who wanted to follow Jesus if only he could bring himself to fling away his many possessions. But Bartimaeus journeys toward Jesus as Jesus journeys toward Jerusalem. Now we know nothing of the life of Bartimaeus before he met Jesus. We don't know how many days or months or years, he suffered as an outcast, wondering, waiting, would he ever be healed? There is another kind of blindness, a kind of a numbness that I became familiar with in my days as a hospital chaplain. That is the blindness and the numbness that settles upon us as we sit in a hospital waiting room, waiting to see whether our loved ones might live or die. It is hard to keep our eyes open in a journey such as that. It is hard not to become blind, not to become numb. And similarly, for the people who live on death row, a blindness and a numbness sets in because they must become blind to the reality that they all face. The horror of waiting is more that they can take. Right now in our lives, there is a way in which we are all in danger of becoming blind, of becoming numb, 
We are in danger of creating our own blindness in these numbingly difficult times because it is too horrible to see what is taking place far away in the biblical land of the Garden of Eden in the land that lies between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. As I was gratefully sharing the Eucharist with my brothers and sisters right here last Wednesday, the roofers were busily doing their work. We were obliged to continue our service through a hail of pounding. Now, even as I was profoundly aware of my safety here in this beautiful church, I couldn't help but hear an echo of the battering of sanctuary doors. I couldn't help but think about the churches, the synagogues, and the mosques that have sustained blows that are not so superficial. Explosions like this are happening daily, sometimes hourly, in our name, and the horror is too difficult to be able to see. Wartime creates a kind of a darkness, a kind of a blindness like no other. We wait for light, and lo, there is darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight, among the vigorous, as if we were dead. We wait for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. My daughter Lily at 15 years old, is living in a time of war, just as I was when I was exactly her age. By the time I was 15, by the time of my 18-year-old brother's first draft notice, the carpet bombing over North Vietnam had begun, the atrocity called Rolling Thunder. It was scheduled to continue for eight weeks, but Rolling Thunder wrought its destructive horror over Vietnam for three more years. But early in that campaign, the horrors were only beginning to mount, and the anti-war movement was just beginning to gain power. I would go to an occasional march almost as if my brothers were going to a hop. We didn't know how serious it was. Our own current resistance to the war is paltry as well because we just haven't seen the numbers yet. As of this week, 3,029 American soldiers have died. And there was a recent estimate of approximately 600,000 Iraqi dead. By the end of the Vietnam War, when the streets were filled with thousands of protesters, there had been 2,011, 529 military deaths and 2 to 4 million Vietnamese deaths. I thank God that my brother was not among the war dead. But so many sons and brothers were. But we are far from those numbers now. We are numb. We are blind. It's as if we're in a great waiting room waiting to see how bad it will get. I'm tempted to echo the psalm and say, how long, how long, O Lord? In seminary, I learned about Reinhold Niebuhr and how he had further developed the concept of just war. It's a Christian concept that was first explored by St. Augustine in the 5th century and then later explored by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th. And although Niebuhr still called himself a pacifist, he had quite an influence on many Christians uh, to turn them toward a more militant stance. In Harper's Magazine of 1932, June, 
Niebuhr wrote that it will be practically impossible to secure social change in America without the very considerable use of violence. In 1951, the National Episcopal Church published its annual stewardship brochure. It read in part, The thrilling stand of our small army on the battlefields of Korea is an inspiring chapter in American history. These are the frontline soldiers. Ours is the task of encouragement. W.B. Spofford, the editor of Witness, a pacifist Episcopal journal, reacted with horror to the pro-military stance the church seemed to be taking. He wrote, Total war with its napalm bombs, area bombardment, and raising of whole villages to rout out snipers and guerrillas, destroying women, babies, and old people, may be hard-headedly defended as part of the brute evil necessity of war. But is it a fit parallel for the work of God? Well, with the advent of bombs of ever-escalating destructiveness and with the horror of the Vietnam War, the concept of just war seemed to lose its luster a little bit. Nathaniel Pierce, who was the national chairman of the Episcopal Peace Fellowship from 1978 to 1980, wrote an essay that carefully dismantled the idea of just war. But he started by listing seven criteria which had been approved by the 74th General Convention of the Episcopal Church. Number one, a just war must be a last resort. Number two, a just war must have a noble or good end. Number three, a just war must be declared by a lawful authority. Number four, a just war must have a reasonable prospect of success. Number five, a just war must do no more harm than the good which will likely result. Number six, a just war demands just conduct by participants. And number seven, a just war requires that mercy be shown to those who are defeated. Well, I don't know if any war can really call itself a war and fulfill all these criteria. But even if it did, as Nathaniel Pierce goes on to ask, can nuclear war and the ever-present possibility that conventional war may escalate into nuclear war ever be a legitimate expression of the obligation to preserve life or seek a love-inspired justice in and among nations? How does one show mercy to an annihilated world? I recently received a gift which was to me of almost unimaginable preciousness. The priest who baptized me and raised me up for confirmation when I was 12 was the Reverend Donald Wiley Seaton. You can see a picture of him. I've already put it back on the table for the ofrendas there. He's got his hand on the shoulder of my grandmother. He was an inspiring, poetic, revolutionary, social justice prophet of a priest. And to my everlasting sorrow, he died of cancer in the late 90s. But his widow recently sent me a taped Easter service sermon in which he talked about his activism as a civil rights and anti-war activist. There were many stories with this, this sermon that touched me deeply, but this was the one that affected me the most. Reverend Seaton was the rector at Christ Church in downtown Washington, D.C., when the Martin Luther King was assassinated. After that terrible day, the city erupted in flames. The rioting was truly terrifying. I stood on the roof of my brother's house, and I watched the smoke rise from the city, and I felt that, indeed, we were in a kind of a wartime. 
and appropriately, there was a curfew. We could not leave the house. Only two days later was Palm Sunday, and the the rioting had barely calmed down. My family did not go to church. But the Reverend Don Seaton and his congregation carried out their usual Palm Sunday service. And then afterwards, they marched down the aisle and out into the street, still vested and carrying their palms. The streets were covered with shattered glass, and the scene recalled the horror of Kristallnacht. The few people who were on the street were the grieving and raging brothers who would inspire the Black Panther Party. After that, the civil rights movement was no longer black and white together. But the faithful procession marched forth, reaching out their hands, handing out palms to the astonished onlookers. They kept marching as witnesses, eyes wide open, hands outstretched to those whom they might well consider to be their enemies. Of course, we all have different options, ways we can respond to life in wartime. But if we choose to hide our eyes and become blind, we might at least remember who said, do not hide your light under a bushel. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works. For those of us who support the war, let us have our eyes open to the words of the one who said, put your sword back in its place. For he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. But eyes open or shut, we can always pray. We can pray to God to try to find out what is the true way for each of us to do as Bartimaeus did and follow Jesus on the way. Like Bartimaeus, even our blindness, we know who Jesus is. We know that we have a Messiah. We know that there is salvation. We know that there is resurrection. With the grace of Christ, we might be able to bear the pain of this vision of our current apocalypse in order to create a new vision, journeying forward even if we tread on shattered glass, to usher in the kingdom of God, not with armies, but with outstretched arms. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R. S-A-V-I-O-U-R, M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.